0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We heard it from an emergency physician in no uncertain terms.
1: We are desperate for more ventilators.
0: The governor has said it as well. Personal protection equipment equals lives. Ventilators equals lives. Today, we'll meet two Coloradans tasked with scouring the globe for those life-saving supplies How do they expect to succeed with so many other states on the same mission? Then how couples can cope with coronavirus cloistering.
2: What all couples can do right now is blame a fair amount of things on the virus and not on your partner.
0: Later, our series about faith during a pandemic. We get a Jewish perspective today from a rabbi in Pueblo ahead of Passover, a holiday in which plagues play a central role. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Governor Jared Polis had some tough words for the Trump administration last week about life-saving equipment. Ventilators are in desperately short supply here, and Polis' team thought they'd found some for sale. Here's Polis speaking with CNN's Don Lemon.
3: We had some, uh, a good
4: lead uh, with the manufacturer on vents at a fair manufacturer's price and they got swiped up by FEMA. So we're not getting them. So it, it was nice when we were just competing against the states. It's harder to also be competing against
0: FEMA. Polis said federal interference is making a bad situation worse.
4: Well, either either be in or out, folks. That's that's kind of my message. Either you're buying them and you're providing them with the states and you're letting us know what we're going to get and when we're going to get them or stay out.
0: Well, the procurement of life-saving supplies is the job of a civilian task force, the governor appointed. Their job is to scour the globe for ventilators and personal protective equipment for medical workers. This task force includes Noel Ginsburg, who has spent a career in manufacturing and went on to lead the state's apprenticeship program. Hi, Noel. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. Also with us, J.B. Holston. He's engineering dean at the University of Denver, also a member of this task force. And hi, J.B.
5: Hello, Ryan. Thanks for having us.
0: I understand that you, J.B., are focusing entirely on ventilators. Uh, How many ventilators did you think you'd be able to buy in this deal? And just briefly, tell me how it fell apart.
5: Uh, Let me uh, try to step back a little bit and say that we're Actively looking for as many ventilators as we can possibly buy from as many sources as we can uh, buy them, Mm -hmm. and uh, this is one of um, many deals that have been on the table. Uh, I think in this one in particular, um, uh, I think the governor has been pretty eloquent about um, what happened. I don't know that I've got anything to add to that, Um, but. Uh, the supply chains are really constrained for the next 60s and 90 days for ventilators, and so, you know, what we've what we've decided to do, what the government has asked us to do, is look everywhere uh, and and work closely with doctors as to what solutions um, are are sufficient. Um, but yeah, this is not. That wasn't the only deal that's uh, that's gone sideways as we've uh, done this work.
0: Well, let's unpack that a bit. You say many deals on the table, and this isn't the only one that's gone sideways. Uh, first off, have any deals come through for ventilators?
5: We do have purchase orders out to a number of sources, and we are expecting some deliveries uh, within uh, a few days. Uh, so uh, we do have some flow coming in. Um, we'd like to have more flow for some higher-end, what I'll call higher-end ventilators, uh, and that's where the supply is the most constrained. But um, in conjunction with a great group of doctors across the state, we've been able to identify some um, sufficient uh, other sources, and we feel confident that uh, that those are going to be coming in. But we'd love to have more what I'll call kind of traditional higher-end uh, ventilators, and that's uh, those are what are the most difficult to source. Yeah, right let's, let's we, just, you know,
0: the, we should be clear that ventilators, that's not one thing. There are different kinds, and, right. as you've suggested, different levels of ventilators. So uh, you say you're confident that some deliveries will be coming through. Can you say roughly how many uh, you think are, are part of a solid deal?
5: Right. We'd rather, um, I think, not be too specific at this point, Ryan, just because we don't want to get anybody disappointed. Um, but we do have orders out for quite a large volume of these things uh, to arrive over the next few weeks. Uh, and, and I've got, uh, um, we might want to talk about this a little bit later, I think we have some interesting um, news uh, on a local uh, source that uh, that uh, has just emerged as well. Um, that's uh, that's pretty exciting.
0: Could you say anything more about that? I can. <laughs> okay.
5: <laughs> you knew I'd ask. There's a, i I thought you might ask, I wasn't sure, but I thought you might yeah there's a there's a a great Colorado manufacturing company in northern Colorado called woodward it's about a two point six billion dollar revenue company uh and they've been working as it happens they've been working closely with cSU for uh for an extended period um, preceding this whole emergency and they have accelerated that work and uh are starting to production on a line of low-cost ventilators, and uh, it looks like they're going to be able to deliver um, some significant supply here uh, to the state uh, over the next uh, couple of months. So, you know, of all of the, uh, for all the disappointments uh, and the difficulties in this task, um, I think that's that's some of the best and most exciting news. Uh, And I know they, you know, We asked them if they were comfortable with our sharing this with you this morning, and they said, absolutely. So uh, that's certainly encouraging news.
0: Okay, so I've just looked up this company, Woodward, as you say, in Fort Collins, and um, it looks like they may manufacture aviation parts in normal times, military transportation and power applications. Are they going entirely to ventilators or just dedicating like a portion of their manufacturing to that?
5: No, it's a great question. They, um, uh, they are going to do as much as they can as fast as they can. A number of the other lines are shut down, so they'll devote as many of those to this uh, as they can. They used to provide um, ventilator parts to GE Healthcare, which is one of the traditional ventilator manufacturers. So this was not all foreign to them, uh, unlike a lot of other manufacturers who we talked to about trying to accelerate production. This is actually a category of uh, components and products that they uh, that they um, had been developing um, but I'll tell you the speed with which they've been responding to this and the focus and again it's not just them there are a bunch of maker spaces and just folks all over Colorado who are stepping up as fast as they can on all of these categories to help but um, these folks were in a position where they could in particular make a dent on this particular issue and uh, uh, and they're moving fast.
0: All right uh, it sounds like that is news you've broken for us this morning JB. Do I have that right? That...
5: I, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's new. Sure. That, that oh, broke right. for you this morning, right?
0: Okay. Um, you know, medical professionals share the governor's concern about the lack of equipment. Here's what we heard from Dr. Richard Zane, chair of emergency medicine at CU, speaking with me last week.
1: We are desperate for more
4: ventilators, depending on whose modeling you look at. And if you look at the governor's model, We need a lot more ventilators than we currently have than there are in this state.
0: Noel Ginsberg, right now, it strikes me that New York is the epicenter of the disease. We know that Governor Andrew Cuomo has said that his state could run out of ventilators. They have since gotten more in. I, I, I want to talk to you just a bit about the competition here. So we heard that FEMA sort of snatched up one cache of ventilators that Colorado had identified. Meanwhile, there are presumably 49 other states doing this to some degree. Shouldn't equipment be allocated based on what states have the most urgent need? Shouldn't this be elastic and flexible, Noel?
4: Well, yes, I think you'd definitely want to see that. Um, Because the way the system is set up now, however, we don't have that kind of guidance. So we have to work you literally day and night, as JB was really describing the various options that we're going after to secure what is needed. But yes, ultimately not only do you want to do that for the country, even within Colorado, we wanna understand where the hot spots are and then ensure that they have the vents that they need when they need it.
0: And so, does that allow for a kind of cooperation among the states? Is that what you're aiming for? Or if Colorado gets a hold of a cache of ventilators, are you going to hold dear to it?
1: You
4: know, that's a decision that would be made um, certainly by the governor, so I wouldn't want to speak for him. But I think all of us that are working on this in Colorado want to protect the people of Colorado and this country. And so, I don't think there will be any hoarding of product and or ventilators right now that we just don't have visibility uh, through the federal system as to where those inventories are. So we can only work on what we know that's necessary here in our state.
0: All right. So the federal government, you're saying, is not providing that kind of information and that kind of system to arrive at what I just described there. That's correct. Do you think that that's a lack of federal leadership, or do you think that's the way it should be?
4: Well, certainly I think we would all be better off if we were operating as the United States of America with 50 states working in unison together to solve this problem. Uh, That just isn't what I'm seeing right now. I think uh, the federal government could be a hero in this uh, with more effort uh, put in this area. Clearly, everybody's doing their best. I'm sure at the federal level, I can certainly know here in Colorado, we're working many times around the clock to meet these needs.
0: JB, when it comes to ventilators, where do they tend to be? You say that you have tried to negotiate several deals. Are they in China where so much manufacturing happens? Uh, Help us understand the landscape a bit.
5: Sure. Yeah, the biggest ventilator, traditional ventilator manufacturers are are not Chinese. Uh, In fact, they're uh, European, and there are some American uh, companies as well. Um, And uh, some of them aren't that big. I mean, uh, you know, we've we've got uh, an arrangement with one uh, that's about an 800 million dollar revenue company, and. which sounds big, but it's it's just not that large. And what's happened with all of these folks is they're suddenly just besieged by everybody ordering everything they possibly can in mm-hmm. the largest possible volumes. Uh, so um, what we've been doing is, you know, essentially putting cancelable orders in for uh, for uh, events from all of these suppliers. And, um, but, you know, I'll tell you, I mean, we've had conversations with folks have said we can deliver to you in January 2021. And, of course, we're wow. all okay. about, you know, the next – the next few weeks. Um, there are sources that are popping up for these from abroad. Um, and, you know, Noel can certainly opine on this too. We're just really, really careful about those. Um, and not just certainly for ventilators, but for any of these product categories, because, it's such, it's such a crazy time out there that it is very difficult to feel confident about a lot of those sources.
0: Right. I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, we have found some ventilators. It's another thing to know, one, that they work, two, that they're the proper kind. And so, JB, are you starting to talk through what reasonable backups would be? In other words, if not the yeah. ideal Cadillac model, what else could you rely on that provide, you know, similar right. life-saving interventions?
5: No, that's exactly it, Ryan. And, and again, this is where we've got a network of just great doctors across the state who have been involved in all of these conversations and have been um, proposing those solutions. And so, you know, we do have orders in for uh, some that they have qualified uh, at that uh, um, that 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 are a little bit more last mile, if you will. Uh, but these are these are products they already use, which is great. So they're not completely unknown. They're just not the standard, roll it in and uh, hook it up and and off you go. Um, And again, I just want to be a little careful because back to the theme of the conversation here, we're all kind of competing. So I'm really happy we have the orders in and now we want to get them in.
0: (laughs) But there are kind of anesthesiology machines that provide a similar service um, that, again, are not the ideal machine. So, you know, Noel Ginsberg, you founded a Colorado medical supply company called Intertech. You now run a local nonprofit focused on career development. And in addition to helping secure ventilators, you're overseeing efforts to secure personal protective equipment for healthcare providers. Some big numbers here. Governor Polis asked the vice president for two million N95 masks and four and a half million surgical masks. And soon he wrote, quoting here, the next few weeks are a make or break moment for us. How realistic is it that the state will be able to get to those numbers with federal help, with your efforts in the private market or both?
4: I can't speak to the federal help because we're getting no indicators as to what will be coming. So we're making the assumption that we're responsible for bringing in all of those needs. I am optimistic that we will be able to accomplish that. But I will tell you that we're competing against not just 50 other states. We're competing with countries. So if France, as an example, went into China and said, we want to purchase as a country a billion masks, that's the kind of competition that we're, we're up against. So we are working our supply chains as diligently, we, as diligently as we can, because at the same time that we're in the market, there are profiteers, there are fraudulent individuals and in organizations that are just standing up to take advantage of this crisis.
2: So, so it sounds like there's
0: there's some price gouging going on in short. I want to thank you both for being with us. We really appreciate it. You heard there from entrepreneur and manufacturer Noel Ginsberg and DU Engineering Dean J.B. Holston. They're on the governor's Innovation Response Team Task Force. Their mission is to ensure Colorado has the supplies it needs to fight COVID-19. Okay, we'll be right back with love and marriage in the time of coronavirus. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
6: I'm Stuart Vanderworld, president of Colorado Public Radio. To every single member and supporter of CPR, I want to personally let you know we are so grateful for you and your steadfast support. Each day, all Coloradans are sharing in a single experience, and more and more people are turning to Colorado Public Radio. And because of your generosity, CPR is here for Colorado. Your support inspires and fuels our service every day. On behalf of everyone at CPR, be well and thank you for your support.
0: Maybe it was sweet at first, more time at home with your significant other. But the stay-at-home order may lead to too much of a good thing. In the city of Xi'an, China, as the coronavirus relented, applications for divorce spiked. Today, some solid advice for couples and cohabitators. Let's start with wife and husband Luann and Jim Mallseed of Castle Rock. Normally, Jim is on the road most of the week for work, but those days are over for now. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Luann, how long has it been since Jim set up his office in the house?
3: Well, it's been about 34 days, 12 hours, 36 minutes, and (laughs) 8 seconds, but I'm not counting. (laughs) (laughs)
0: And how would you say that's going so far? I'm not terribly optimistic if you're counting down to the second.
3: It actually hasn't been that bad.
0: Jim, is it a nice change not to travel? There's pluses and minuses to that. You know, it's
1: great to have a built-in chef and my wife being here for me. Um, I can literally walk down the hallway and have lunch, but I do miss all my perks of being a frequent traveler and all the care that goes into all the hotels that I usually visit during the course of a work week.
0: Are you okay, Luann, with him describing you as his chef?
3: No, because all he wants is breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day.
0: (laughs) You're not having that.
3: I'm not having that.
0: (laughs) Okay, you both generally said it's going well. Neither of you sounded terribly lovey-dovey and excited at the chance to really spend some time with each other. Jim, what do you say?
1: Well, for me, I've been consulting and traveling for 20 plus years. You know, it's a routine. Sunday night, I pack my bag, get on the road with a little bit of luck. I'm home Thursday. You know, our relationship has definitely been great. The invention of Facebook has definitely uh, helped us out with communicating a little bit better, even FaceTime being into the mix at this point. But absence does make the heart grow fonder. And uh, we do find a way to make some fun time for ourselves on the weekend. So we're not locked down in the household chores and we're not locked down into being homebodies at that point.
0: Is there anything that you're learning about each other? In other words, it's been true, I think, for many people during this coronavirus situation that you're seeing dimensions of your spouse you don't normally see because normally they're away at work
1: cap needs to be put back on the toothpaste every morning here. <laughs> um, but that's definitely one thing that you're beginning to find out. Just, you know, it's one thing if you do get a chance to spend, you know, three days a week, like we said, but on a daily, habitual basis, we're learning to live with each other's ticks, whether, you know, it's even casually about using the ice maker to get a nice drink of ice water and having the ice cubes flop out of there while I'm on a conference call. It's like, really? This is going on right now? This is great.
0: Oh, the sound of the ice cubes hitting the glass during your work meeting. (laughs) <laughs> hey, when you're used to being
3: by yourself you don't think about things like that you know doing the dishes and getting a you know a glass of water with the ice and shutting the doors vacuuming
0: okay luann the cap on the toothpaste tell me about mm-hmm. that
3: apparently it's a thing apparently um i i have to put the cap back on the toothpaste when i'm finished with it Well, for me
1: being on the road, you know, and staying maybe, you know, 130 nights a year in a hotel room, you leave your toiletries and other things out like toothpaste and including your toothbrush when maid service or maintenance comes into the building. I like to make sure I know where my stuff is and how it's being controlled so no accidents happen to that, right? That's all that we need to have happen. So I like putting my stuff away on a daily
3: basis.
0: Luann, I'm just trying to figure out what kind of monster doesn't put the cap back on the toothpaste.
3: Uh, Apparently, I'm Matt Monster. (laughs) I'm used to being by myself and doing me, and now apparently I need to look after him for seven days a week.
0: Well, I have to say, you two seem to be weathering this rather well, and it it may be comforting to know that even though it may not seem like it right now, you're not alone. For this segment on love during coronavirus, we asked listeners to chime in. Uh, One frazzled man told us that stress in their one-bedroom apartment is through the roof. He he tweeted, when I'm on the phone, my wife can't watch TV, can't play the radio, can't use her mixer. I can't make noise. We fight constantly. I haven't slept through the night in a month. Perhaps they could relate to the sound of your ice maker. (laughs) Okay, you two uh, stay on the line with me. I want to bring in relationship guru Scott Stanley, who is also at home. Uh, Professor Stanley is a researcher and co-developer of the Center for Marital and Family Studies. She's at the University of Denver. He is isolating with his wife and two adult children. And Scott, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thank you. I'm really glad to be here.
0: Uh, You've just heard some from Luann and Jim, who seem to have a really nice sense of humor about their new 24-7 existence. Uh, How how important is humor at this time, do you think?
2: I had not thought about that in comments that I was preparing, but it's super important. Because if you can laugh at some of the things and and the way that you're struggling, the way that you're maneuvering around each other, boy, does that beat the heck out of arguing or, or getting grinchy at each other.
0: A lot of response from CPR News Instagram followers. One couple reports they're trying to be cognizant about being more tidy and doing their share of cleaning. Still another couple says they do a power hour of chores after dinner and then they relax together guilt free. It seems to me, Scott, those are almost declarations that couples are making promises or commitments. Does that sound like the right path?
2: It is, because I think what's happened to everybody right now, almost regardless of their specific circumstances, is routines have just blown up. You know, everybody's normal routine, how much they go out, whether they work outside the home, et cetera. most people's routines have blown up. And one of the things that I like to talk about with couples is to decide and not slide. And what I mean by that is instead of just letting things happen, there's certain things happening right now for a lot of couples that people should actually try to make a decision about, just like that last example that you just raised. What things can we do and agree to do instead of just sliding into train wreck after train wreck? What can we decide about right now instead of just letting it slide?
0: What are some other examples where I might be able to make a decision with my partner?
2: a lot of people talking right now, and and many of us are experiencing this, where somebody's, or maybe both, are working a lot from home in ways that they haven't before. So they're on the computer, they're on phone calls, they're on conference calls, maybe they're on video conference calls. And those things generate a fair amount of noise and need to maneuver for other people in the house you need like a space over here and so everybody's inconvenience the the woman that you mentioned in the apartment with her partner where you know he's on these conference calls and she can't do what she normally does she can't listen to music she can't watch shows so these are real challenges where people have to work out well what's it look like now if one of us is working not only at home, but maybe even working more than usual at home, that's a real challenge for two people to figure out what they're going to do about it.
0: Another listener says, we're talking about things right away if we are upset or if we need to set boundaries. That strikes me, Scott, as a way to avoid stewing on stuff and getting resentful.
2: It sounds really healthy, but let me throw in this one caution for people. So for okay. the couples that can do that, that's wonderful because they're they're keeping short accounts, if you will, and they're dealing with stuff, making decisions moving on, but a lot of couples actually need to observe a different rule right now and try to decide together to follow this, which goes like this: just because some event happening right now before one of us or between both of us triggered an issue, it does not mean that this moment is the best time to talk about that issue. And we do this all the time in our lives, like events about money happen all the time, events about space, events about who's doing what around the house. And what a lot of couples do is they let the event drag them into an argument or a conflict right then about that issue, instead of setting aside some other time together when they're at their best and they can, well, let's talk about this. What should we do differently? Not a big conversation, but just a tight one about how can we handle this to protect our relationship?
0: Ah, interesting. So you have to make that decision for yourselves. Jim, Luann, which category do you fall into? The the folks who talk about something right away or need a little space before?
1: We definitely communicate to each other right off the bat. For us, our points have been really up to this stage, all minor related things like, you know, the infamous toothpaste that we talked about placing the roll of toilet paper at this point on the on the proper rung and in the right direction. All little things like that that have come up that are things that we are, are a little bit snide with each other about, but we deal with the sarcasm and the humor and it tends to help out.
0: It's so funny. I saw a meme about couples creating an imaginary third person in their relationship. And <laughs> when, when something is amiss, you know, like someone didn't put the cap on the toothpaste, you say that third person gets the blame. you know, oh, that was that was Mindy.
2: You know this is such a great point. and what all couples can do right now is blame a fair amount of things on the virus. So oh. even if things were like a long-standing pattern between the two of them uh, that maybe they haven't been dealing with at the moment, it's a pretty good idea to blame a good number of things on the virus and not on your partner.
0: Oh, I just love that, Scott. (laughs) I, I think that we've been in such terror of this virus. It feels really good to heap some stuff on it.
2: Yeah, this may be about the only thing that it's good for is this, which is giving us all a clear external common enemy in our relationships so that it's not all about me and you.
0: Speaking of the fear around this another of our listeners wants to know, how do we cope with taking turns being shut down and panicking? I guess this assumes that uh, both members of a couple should not be panicking at the same time, Scott.
6: (laughs) Well,
2: you know that's a fascinating point. I don't know of any studies on that, but they might exist. I do think for a lot of fairly well-functioning couples, they do work that out in, in a way that both are not allowed to panic at the same time. Somebody's got to kind of keep their hand on the wheel. And I do think when you have two people that are sort of prone to panic, if they actually take turns, that can not only be a good thing, but they should appreciate that about their relationship. Hmm. Now, something a lot of people could do right now, if one or both tend to be pretty reactive to the anxiety and the fear, uh, and this is a conversation, they have to sit down and just like a 10 minute conversation, share a little between the two about what kinds of things are actually most supportive for you, because it may not be what your partner finds supportive. You know, we'll tend to do the thing for the other that we want, that we find supportive. But it's a good moment to, like, you know, one may say, you know, actually, it doesn't help me to talk, I just want a hug. And the other may say, it helps me to talk a bit and just have you listen. Whatever it is for the two of them, figure that out so you can each try to, when another key of ours, do your part to meet the other's needs through this time.
1: My wife has had a great saying, and I'll steal it. I know she's probably getting ready to say it is, you got this or we got this. And that's how we've gotten through the 28 years of marriage. You know, we we tend to figure things out quite collaboratively. And that's got to continue in order for it to be successful.
3: That's always been our mojo. We've got this, (laughs) no matter what it's been. And he's a little bit stronger than I am at the moment um, about the whole thing. So he's been my rock.
0: There was a study done, it appeared in the Journal of Family Psychology, looking at couples in the aftermath of South Carolina's 1989 storm, Hurricane Hugo. And it compared those who lived in counties hardest hit to those who'd suffered less. Uh, The results... Were that more people in the devastated counties divorced in the following year, but more people also married scott what what does that indicate to you?
2: Yeah, the other thing they found in those counties with the uh, are the births were up, so divorce is up, marriage is up, births are up, and the way they described what they thought that meant, I think is exactly right that in this sort of time of crisis and with so much going on and the fear and the uncertainty. A number of people probably kind of reevaluated the whole trajectory of their life in these fundamentally important relationships, and they made decisions. They made changes. So for some, that was going ahead and getting married. For some, that was this is not working. Uh, and for others, uh, well, you can imagine two scenarios where the babies come from. But yes. you know, <laughs> some of those were you know kind of planned, and some of them were were more you know. That's how they were coping with some of the time.
0: Uh, Not to bring the room down too much, the figurative room, because we're all in different ones, but um, we got this sobering comment on Twitter. My wife of 12 years and I are in the middle of separating. As someone with a compromised immune system, as a cancer survivor, I've been staying home since March 13th. If the coronavirus doesn't kill me, these living arrangements will. (laughs) Ouch. Ouch.
2: Yeah, that's it's painful cuz and this is something to keep in mind during this. So if somebody's listening and they're in a relationship that's strong, they have such an asset in that right now. If they're in a relationship that is not going at all well, then it's not only not an asset, it's a real uh difficult thing and they're going to have to either decide together, this is our moment to try to turn this around or it's just going to get more difficult. But there's also all the people out there that don't have a really strong, committed relationship. They don't have that partner right now.
0: Here's one listener who says, I would love tips on how to stay connected to your significant other who you don't live with.
2: So let's deal with the health issue first, because I do think there's some couples where one person is a medical provider right now, where they have actually moved apart or the one is like completely banned to the basement. And in in the, the situation you described, the two people have to have a pretty reasonable assessment and a sense of trust for the quality of this conversation. Is one of their patterns of behavior actually one that would put the other at medical health risk? And if so, they have to act on that. One of the things I've often noted is that there's a lot of couples that have long distance relationships whose relationships are actually fairly fantastic. The advantages of that are you're not dealing with the things like the toothpaste cap and you're not having to like push each other so much on behavior right now.
0: There are couples for whom the fear is also economic. It's not just health right now. Scott.
2: Well, the economic challenge, I think, is gigantic because it for many people, it combines the worst case of this is out of my control and I can't do anything. Anything at the moment to regain control. Now, some people can. Some people can move this around or do this or whatever. But what matters most there is that as a couple, you try not to let that be the thing that you argue about, but you try to have that be something that you find ways to support each other about, which could even include for some people right now, it could be let's limit to small time frames like. Thursday at 7 for 15 minutes and Saturday for 15. Well, we'll talk about the money thing, but let's not do what a lot of couples are going to do right now, which is talk about it all the time.
0: I feel like it's an old saw that the number one reason for divorce is money. Is that true?
2: It's not exactly true. It's probably more this way. It's not money per se. It's that most arguments actually are about money. And it goes back to something I said earlier in the call If you think about the giant categories of things couples struggle with, like parenting and role expectations and money, in-laws, whatever, you know, everybody's got their list. Uh, Money is at the top of the list for the average couple, and events around money happen almost every day. And right now, they're pretty intense. So these events around money, like a check bounces, or there's not enough money to pay this bill, or what's this charge here? Those are all events, and they trigger the issue of money. And what we tend to do is we let that event draw us into a conflict about money, Right then, instead of putting a boundary on it and say, okay, we need to talk about money, even if we don't have much control right now. But let's put a boundary on that. Let's pick the times instead of letting it pick the times that we deal with it.
0: All right. Well, Luann, you are looking now at the next 34 days, 12 hours, and 36 minutes. Send help with, (laughs) with Jim. Uh, Jim and Luann, I guess, like, what advice would you give to other couples? Um,
3: hey, you know, i do something that's going to make you laugh and watch a movie, play a game. We're actually going to be taking dance lessons next week um, in our mm. own home.
0: So virtual teacher, but uh, students together. That is you and Jim.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I love that.
1: Jimmy, yeah. you, you, you looking forward to that? I'm just so thrilled about this. This should be definitely one of those weeks where we will be putting that ice cube dispenser to use to ice down ankles and and feet as we step (laughs) on each other's toes because I was born with two left feet. So this is definitely going to challenge that area of expertise as far as us getting together and doing some things.
0: Well, I want to thank you all for being with us. Thanks so much.
3: No, thank you. Thank you. You
0: You heard from the Mall Seeds, Luann and Jim of Castle Rock, and DU psychologist Scott Stanley. Rabbi Bertie Becker has for weeks now posted Shabbat services and other video messages to Facebook. It's how she's staying connected to members of Temple Emmanuel in Pueblo. Just the other day, she read a classic story about the Jewish holiday of Passover, which is getting underway.
6: It's called The Carp in the Bathtub. When I was a little girl, I lived in an apartment house in New York City with Mama and Papa and my little brother, Harry. It was not very fancy, but Papa said we were lucky. We had our own bathroom. Mama was a wonderful cook. Best of all was Mama's gefilte fish. Twice a year, she made gefilte fish. In the autumn for Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and in the spring for Pesach, the festival of Passover. Mama made her gefilte fish out of carp, Mama liked to buy her carp at least a week before Passover to make sure she got the nicest, fattest, shiniest one. But Mama knew that a dead fish sitting in the icebox for a week would not be very good when the time came to make it into gefilte fish. So Mama bought her fish live and carried it home in a pail of water. All the way home, it flopped and flipped, as soon as she got home, she would call, Leah. run the water in the tub.
0: I have to admit, I eat gefilte fish not just at Passover, but year-round. It's a very divisive food, though. People have strong emotions on either side. Here's the thing about Passover. It is an incredibly social holiday. Families, friends, even strangers sit at big, long tables. But of course, that's not possible now with coronavirus circulating. So what will Passover look like? And what's a Jewish perspective on these unsettling times? Well, Rabbi Bertie Becker, who you heard in that story, joins us as we continue our occasional conversations about faith and COVID-19. And uh, Rabbi Chag happy almost Passover.
7: I'd piss off some air, too, as well.
0: Besides relying on video, how has your job changed since the suspension of in-person religious services? How do you see your role at a time like this?
7: Well, for me, the main change is since I live 110 miles from my congregation, I'm not driving. Um, So I'm meeting people online and by phone and, um, as you said, by making posts. Uh, my, my role I see as keeping us connected and keeping us engaged, and, and through my posts I'm trying to anticipate their concerns and um, address some issues that, that they've brought up to me, either through email or through phone calls, um, assuming that the people who have reached out to me are addressing issues that other people might have as well.
0: Yeah, so what are some of the common concerns you're hearing in the face of a pandemic? I wonder if people are asking, is this God's will? Is this God's way?
7: Actually, that's not a question that I've heard. Um, Although I imagine some people are thinking it. But the the things that I'm getting more are... um, how do I keep my faith? How do I, um, how do I pray? How do I, because community is so important in our prayers. Um, I just did another video on the Kaddish, which is a very important prayer, especially with all the death that's now occurring. Mm. Um, So explaining how do you say Kaddish when you're Alone and in isolation because we can't come together as community.
0: Um, wow, that's that's heavy stuff, isn't it? It
7: it is, but it's important, uh, especially at a time when community is feeling that isolation.
0: Matt Cohen is the president of Temple Micah in Denver, and uh, he says he thinks of Passover as the Jewish Thanksgiving.
4: For me, it's always been a holiday about family and being home. It is an opportunity, much like Thanksgiving, to invite strangers in, people who don't otherwise have a place to go. And that's going to be difficult to do this year, if not impossible.
0: So Rabbi, how will your own Seder for Passover look different this year?
7: He's correct in that I've, I've always had new people at my seder also, mm.
2: um,
7: as, as well as family and friends, and this year we can't do that. And this year will be, I've had as many as 25 people at a table. This year it will be my daughter and myself, and hopefully my son and his fiance on Skype. We say at the very beginning, those who are hungry come and eat. Um, so opening our door instead has to be opening our hearts and helping others in any way we can. That might It might be that we can't personally be on the front lines, but maybe we can help through uh, organizations that are do, making uh, ventilators, making masks, making other th- supplies available to those frontline workers.
0: Well, that's interesting. So it's almost as, as Seder as an active service this year.
7: I think it will be. I think it will be more in terms of making it relatable. I What I'm hoping is that people will think more in terms of what do these Items mean on the Seder plate. What does it mean to be both a, a bread of affliction and a bread of freedom? How do you strike that balance? What is it to really come out of Mitzrayim, which is not just Egypt, but is also a narrow place into freedom? So what are those narrow places that we're all feeling? It's not just this physical isolation and restriction there's so many other types of, of narrow places that we have when you're bullied, when you're shunned, when you're made fun of, when you're um, well, there's still places where there's slave labor or even slavery. Um, all of these other things that, that affect us that we don't necessarily think about or don't want to think about, Maybe this is the year where we really need to think about how does the past, how do these symbols on our theater plate really affect us today? How are they relevant today? And how do we take them forward when we're able to step out into our own freedom? Because now we can really, everyone around the world can really say, it wasn't my ancestors, it was me I was in a place, a confined place.
0: A confined place. It's not just a historical chapter, a story from a book. It's a lived experience. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Rabbi Bertie Becker joins us, part of our conversations about faith in the time of coronavirus. Rabbi Becker uh, is it Temple Emmanuel in Pueblo? As we heard, she has a long commute there. Uh, normally when they meet in person, but she's been connecting with her flock uh, via video chats and recorded videos. Rabbi Jay Shear is president and CEO of the nonprofit Jewish Colorado. He says some in the Jewish community have joked that Passover has been canceled because of the plague. Look, I will be frank, it's not really my theology to think that this was enacted upon us by the wonderment I consider God. Other theologians, other uh, religious leaders may draw other conclusions. I'll just say that plagues are central to the Passover storyline. There are uh, 10 of them, including frogs, boils, hail. Do do you—I'd like to get back to that question I raised earlier. You say that um, you don't have lots of people asking the question, but they may be wondering it. Is it God's doing? How do you answer that question, Rabbi?
7: How do I answer the question? Um, I, I, I don't think of God as having a hand, a physical hand in this. Um, and what comes naturally is part of what people have to address all the time. I think it's very important for humanity that that it it seems to me that we always have the ability to face whatever it is that we're being given. Hmm. And the... That ability is what we need to um, to reference and to pull on this this plague is no different than any other plague and when we come out of it we'll have to come out of it with our own strength and with our own messages and it will have our own stories coming out of it and hopefully those stories will lead us to a better place that's I think also part of the story of the Haggadah is that that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to bring us strength and hope and lead us to a better place. God's hand is to say, I'm here to help you find that within you and within your community and within all of humanity. And maybe that's what this plague is about, is to finally say, we're all in this together. We are one world. We are no longer separate people in isolated parts of the world. We are one humanity. Maybe we'll come out of this knowing that.
0: You mentioned the Haggadah, the story of the Israelites escaping slavery in ancient Egypt. I think many of these themes will resonate for those beyond the Jewish faith as well. I hope that you enjoy your Seder, Rabbi. I know it'll be different, uh, but I'm grateful for your time. Stay healthy.
7: Thank you, and
0: you too. Rabbi Bertie Becker of Temple Emanuel in Pueblo. We spoke ahead of Passover for our series about faith and coronavirus. Previously, we heard from Pastor Caitlin Trussell of Augustana Lutheran Church in Denver. And more to come in coming weeks. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. It's Colorado Matters. You're tuned to CPR News.